Welcome back to the Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts on all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation was with my new friend, Dr. Drew Ramsey. Is a bad mofo. He is a medical doctor. He's the clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and is an active clinical practice in New York City. Presently, he moved to Indiana and he's headed off to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to ride horses bareback is my vision of what he's going to do. He's also featured all over the place. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, NPR, BBC. He's got multiple books. He's got TED Talks. He's one of the primary pioneers in the conversation around food psychiatry. He is a bad mother trucker. And it was very fascinating discussion of the way that food impacts and informs our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions decision-making. We get into neuroparasitology, which is essentially the study of when one critter hacks the nervous system of another critter in order to impose their will upon them, typically for some form of reproduction or something of the sort. There's examples of this in nature with fungus, such as the cordyceps mushroom, which we discussed a little bit in this conversation. Toxoplasmosis is another example of it that we've discussed previously. The jewel wasp is another interesting example. So if you guys are curious about this phenomenon that happens in nature, look up any of those or just listen to this conversation. Our body is absolutely infested inside and out with a whole plethora of different bugs. And so my mind, of course, goes to what level of free will do we have? Who's running the show in this human organism? Is it the trillions of bugs that our bodies act as a little mini mobile hotel for? Is it uh, maybe social media? Is it the food that we put into our face, the way it affects our blood sugar or hormone levels, our circadian rhythms? I don't know. In this conversation, I dig into the mind of someone that is far smarter than I probably ever will be, Dr. Drew Ramsey, and we discuss questions that are far-reaching, that time's head-scratching, and it was recorded about, I think we started recording at like 9 p.m., 8.30 p.m. or something like that. We didn't finish up until after 10. So the beginning of it, I think we were both a little sleepy. The end, I think 20 minutes in is when it gets really good, 25 minutes in or so inside the sauna here at my place in Santa Monica. And that's it. That's all. If you enjoyed this conversation, por favor, leave us reviews if you feel we deserve it. iTunes, Spotify, any place that feels good for you. That's a great way to support. Also, you could tell your friends, tell your grandma, tell your cousins, whatever feels good for you. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Here we go. Back to the program with my dog, Dr. Drew Ramsey. We're good to go. And you've got a new book, kind of le- I do have a new book coming out. Eat yeah. to Beat. I like the alliteration. Depression and anxiety. Nourish your ways to better mental health in six weeks. Don't you love the six week, the publisher, the demand that there's like, you have to do it. And yeah. I don't know if that, did you have before the book, was you there know, a six week or was that a, a formulation from that? Well, four to six weeks is the general time it takes for antidepressants to work, at least pharmaceutical antidepressants that aren't ketamine or psilocybin. And I, and I would say even for those medicines to take full effect and to really think about them in a therapeutic situation, you're talking four to six weeks. And so certainly there's the kind of adaptation to what we do clinically 
and how I think about food and brain change into a six-week plan. But there is something to the six weeks. I mean, I, you know, there's a reason I didn't want to do a 21-day plan or a 10-day plan. I think that four to six weeks, you can you can take small steps but still get to the important changes that a lot of people, especially a lot of people struggling with mood and anxiety, need to make to improve their brain health and their mental health. Is anxiety, depression, things of that sort, is that something that's coming from your own personal experience? Is that why you're passionate about it? Well, for sure. I mean, it comes from my personal experience, and I think it comes from, I mean, even though I call it professional experience, I mean, it's very personal being a psychiatrist. And so that's really where I've lived the last 20 years of my professional life. Early in my career, I took care of patients with a lot of um, psychotic disorders and more what are called SMI, severe mental illnesses. Not really the best moniker for them, but even then, I mean, just taking care of a lot of patients with uh, for depression and anxiety, that's really what my practice is kind of focused on. And then personally, I would say that probably, I mean, in between when I met you and then when I, I came over here, I went out to the ocean, which for me is in some ways a lot about anxiety and exposure therapy and kind of sitting with a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of uh, active imagination, a lot of thoughts about sharks while I'm in the water. Um, Maybe every surfer's like that, but uh, a lot of just things that interrupt your breath and make you not a very good surfer and not a good headspace. And then depression, I think, you know, it's funny. um, With this book, there have been more questions about that. And I think that that also talks about where we are, that... um, you know, because people are talking about their mental health more, which is really wonderful. And so for sure, I mean, I, I started in psychotherapy when I was in, well, I must have been, it was in medical school, second year of medical school. And it was just, I was struggling a little bit with my mood, with medical school in general, and just not, I don't know, I was a pretty, I don't like integrative kind of guy. I don't know. I just, I I liked natural stuff. I I was really um, interested in diet. I was vegetarian at that time. I was um, interested in acupuncture and, you know, it's um, being trained in a traditional medical model is really a test that, that doesn't have a lot to do with the facts at the end of the day. I mean, if you think about as a psychiatrist, the number of facts I learned in medical school that I use in everyday practice, but it, it, it's not a ton but it teaches you a stance, and it's really this uh, trial by fire. But it's just it's one of those things that every time they change the training, you know, old doctors kind of let's say shake their head. But there's something about being there all the time in the hospital, just being in all stages of illness in a somewhat fragile state. So that's why doctors burn out. That's why we have a lot of depression, suicide, addiction. I mean, all that stuff. And not just to physicians. Physicians get all the headlines, but that's all of healthcare. And particularly this year, we're recording in 2021, when I think about the amount of carnage and death and suffering that my colleagues have seen and endured. And in the midst of all this political discord, they're actually the ones going to work every day in the ER. Hmm. It's just... uh, it's staggering, actually, the amount, uh, the burden and disability of depression and anxiety when it comes to what everyone's experiencing now, um, sort of quasi-parapandemic, as I'm calling it. We're not really post-pandemic, but we see some light at the end of the tunnel. I wonder how depression and anxiety and mental-emotional states like that would affect the state of the healthcare model and, and Western medicine. I wonder how that affects the course of healthcare. How does the fact that we don't take care of the mental health 
of healthcare providers affect our healthcare system. Yeah, like the direction of the healthcare system. Well, I think it's one of the reasons a lot of people are unsatisfied with the healthcare system. That the reason healthcare workers are depressed and anxious is they're often not appreciated. Mm. They spend a lot of time in the midst of a very inefficient electronic healthcare record that really hasn't, uh, I'm sure it's benefited big data. It's really destroyed the patient-doctor relationship in a certain way. And, you know, physicians spend a lot of time having to justify things that are decisions in ways that is infuriating. Like the other day I was prescribing some you know, generic medication like Prozac. It was like literally $10 for a three-month supply. And I had to jump through about an hour of hoops for no apparent reason. And it's like kind of when you get stuck on the interstate and you're in this horrible traffic jam. And, and there's something, if you never actually see what causes it, that just feels particularly a little cruel. I think sometimes being in healthcare is a little bit like that. The bottom line is anything that gets in between healer and patient in my mind, begins to really dilute both the experience of the healthcare provider, but also the patient experience. I mean, it's why in the end I became a psychiatrist, is it seemed the only way left in modern medicine to actually get to know people, because it's the last place in medicine where we, we listen. This very privileged spot. Certainly, all of my colleagues in medicine do their best to listen. We all know that the best way to practice, the best way to have better outcomes, the best way to know your patients and feel satisfied is to listen more. It's just hasn't really been protected anywhere else in medicine other than in psychiatry. Hmm. And then that listening, having a, a, a safe place to be listened to, I wonder the value of that in a culture that is, is presently more isolated than, than ever. I mean, the pandemic stuff, loneliness and depression, I think the WHO called it the number one leading cause of disability worldwide. Mm-hmm. You know, and all that, I think, ultimately ties back to a lot of different things, nutrition obviously included, but a general sensation of, of feeling disconnected, feeling like maybe you know no one cares or why would they? Or, so I'd imagine that's such a, a, a powerful part of medicine that I think it would be easy, easy to overlook that part in the, in the standard Western model. I think so. I mean, I think that part of what we're struggling with in the Western model of medicine is that, oh, sorry. Oh, oh it's okay. It's dinging me. No, up. it's okay. Ding it up. Uh, 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 oh, boy. What we got? Uh, you got some action? Those are your kids on there? Those are my kids. Oh, that was Maxi Max. Max Lugabear. Is, is, uh, I feel like such a cool L.A. guy. I'm here. In my, you're like, I think, probably one of the fittest people I've ever uh, been around. We're keeping that and, part in the podcast. <laughs> that's for sure. You're super fit. <laughs> This, this is actually, if you ever, I mean, I, I don't come to L.A. very much. And yesterday I had the kind of poor country boy experience of L.A. where I went for sushi and I waited and I waited for a table and I waited forever. And, you know, it was just sort of a, you know, there by yourself feeling like, gosh, I don't know. And then tonight I'm at this like super cool spot where I just see Max Lugavere, super cool guy. It's like, I feel like a cool, I'm, I've got a you know, hey, you're a cool guy now. black pants on. Dr. Dr. Ramsey, you're a cool guy. Um, yeah, here, let me show you a picture. You're L.A. chic. Let me show you a picture of my <laughs> kids here. Where uh, my little? Uh, There's a picture of my horse. That's Cinco. All oh, right, you're an equestrian. No, I mean that's mother flipping Drew Ramsey, the a, equestrian, a little, riding tried, bareback. I'm trying. I haven't tried Jackson bareback. Hole. I haven't tried bareback <laughs> yet. That's my that's my son Forrest and, and Cinco the horse. Um, that's good. 
So you you get down in the nature. You're about the. You're, I'm big. So I, yeah, we live we live on a hundred and twenty plus acres of, of mainly forest and pasture and really really rural Indiana. Yeah. And yeah, it really it really does something for you in terms of hanging out in the nature um, every day and, and and being there in the kind of cycle of things and. So with the nature, so there's the. There's the Shinrin Yoku, which I'm sure you're you're well right. familiar with forest, the old nature the bathing. Forest bathing. Ja- Japanese talk. Um and when you're in the nature, there's all the different, you know, there's there's so many different layers to what's happening. There's the, the visual aesthetic aspect of it, which probably ties back to um our our ancestral memories, I would imagine. You know, so you being outside an open savannah that 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 triggers something that tells you that you're you're safe. I agree, and, and there's even data. Um, there's this great hospital here. There's my this oh, one. the humans. Oh, those are my humans. Whoa, your son's got stees. Yeah, that's cool. What a, what a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, they're, 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 they're pretty cute. I mean, this is the first time in the pandemic I've been. The thing about you know, having young kids is, you know, sort of everything in your life takes you away from them, right? That it's sort of a strange thing being in your forties and you kind of hit your stride professionally and right, and and then all of those things just. Um, take you away from your kids at some point uh, in, in a way that uh, it's just really challenging. I haven't been away from them for the whole pandemic. And uh, especially after I was traveling back and forth between New York where I had my practice and, and was doing some of that digitally, maybe a third of it before the pandemic, and then um, spending half the week in really rural Indiana. And it was just... Um, you know, it was a sort of problem I didn't exactly know how to solve because it was working out okay. We were pretty nomadic and mobile as a family and got to go kind of traveling around to do a lot of spreading the brain food gospel. But also there was this sense of just like even being away from them for a couple of nights, just not, not, I don't know, you just miss a lot. What a great thing that you have that to miss. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it is, it is. Uh, very, uh, very stabilizing thing mm-hmm. um, for me. Instead of sort of talking about asking about my mental health, and that's certainly for me been something that's been very, uh, uh, I would say, like challenging in all the right ways. Like you know that hormesis idea, right? That just like really challenges. At least it's challenged me to kind of. Um, well, you don't end up ever, I think, being the type of parent that you think you're going to be. And then it's a little startling, right? When you hear yourself as like, I don't know, being grumpy or you hear yourself like scolding your children appropriately, but you're like, wow, I sound like that, like, you know, dad thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, right, but it's such a, it's, and, and then they change so quickly. It's really this um, mix of emotions where just as you're totally like, you know, living on your 18-month-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, five-year-old, whatever. It's like that is a very, like, it's a, it's a, brief, it's a brief bit. Mm. Uh, it really teaches you the importance of mindfulness and being present um, in a way that uh, nothing else has for me. So the, the mindfulness, presence, nature, Shinrin, Yoku stuff, how big of a lever is the exposure to... Uh, the bacteria that we'd naturally be exposed to when we're spending out time out on a farm or out you know near a dog that's bringing stuff in and mm-hmm. you know cultivating our microbiome and how how does that end up trickling in 
and out and up and down into affecting our our thoughts, our feelings, our. Well, I mean, really, I mean that that's that's the fun question that's getting answered uh, these days. I mean, you can look at some of the data and and some of the studies that have shown shifting bacteria in the gut lead to shifts in cognition over time, some improvements, um, some changes in mood and improvement in mood. There's a really interesting study that came out of Johns Hopkins showing that if you gave people who were hospitalized for mania, if you give them treatment as usual and then give them a probiotic versus give them a placebo, the patients who had both a high inflammatory index and got the probiotic, they had a 90% decreased rehospitalization rate in six months. You know, Again, it's like a lever of, and it gives a piece of evidence, like does bacteria shift or modify the brain and brain behavior, emotion, cognition? And I think for sure the answer is yes. Then what does this have to do with kind of this natural lifestyle of being outside? I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways that, you know, we're just talking about my kids, right? Boy, because my kids out in nature, I mean, like, it's such a... And for anybody who has pets or kids, yeah, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It's just such a different experience. You kind of get them in, you know, get them out in the wild. And then in terms of the bacteria you pick up, and it's one of the reasons I actually moved my family to the farm. We were living in New York. My son was like looking like he might get an asthma diagnosis. And, you know, like when you have like a young family in, in New York and your kid is like a little sound sensitive, you know, there's a way, there's a way it just feels like, I don't know, it's, it's frightening. There's such a scrutiny of kids and of, of development there and such a kind of competitiveness by nature in that in New York. And uh, I think it's a part of getting out to the farm for us. We started doing it just in the summers and then we moved out full time. It is about the bacteria. I mean, it's about like, I don't know, the kids uh, holding chickens. It's about like, I don't know what this is, but probably like we stay in here too long, you're just going to start smelling a little bit like horse shit because I've been around... <laughs> been around horses so much i was like smelling myself in the mask the other day and i was like oh my gosh or every now and then it's just you know we're constantly in a barn or handling an animal or eating food with dirt on it or eating food directly a lot of times we'll go out pick food directly from our garden you know rinse it off a little bit and that's it and so you know you can slice the evidence all kinds of different ways you can look at farm kids and that they have lower rates of allergies you can look at um you know, that, that type of data. You can look at the microbiome diversity of people who are exposed or spend time on farms, and it tends to be more diverse. But, you know, it's interesting to me how we, we try and kind of parse these things out and, and improve them in a, in a scientific way, right? Where it's like somehow that informs and tells us what we feel. And I think as I've gotten more secure in my identity and maybe a little older and it, it seemed to me one of the things that's happened to people in general is a kind of abdication of really a sense of our own experience. Like I was thinking, I, I know exactly what I feel today. Like I'm not a great surfer. Like I, I didn't grow up in Hawaii like you. Like I paddle out there and it, it's it's exciting and terrifying and a little disappointing every time. <laughs> but But I know what I feel when I'm out there. I know what I felt today after the surfing when I'm on the edge of the ocean and I'm I'm sitting there kind of overwhelmed in all of my senses and just really trying to, I don't know, settle down right there on the edge of land. So so I think people know what they feel on farms and in nature. And, um, and I think there's, there's some reasons for that. There's also probably some of the questions of like how much, you know, how much do these bugs kind of influence us, control us? It's going to be a real interesting next 10 to 20 years as we sort out this uh, interplay between microbiome, inflammatory systems, food, 
and dietary pattern, it's going to be good. How much do the bugs control us? When you came in, I was watching a YouTube video about cordyceps mushrooms and neuroparasitology is the, the, the term for the, the study of various different parasitic organisms in the nature, mm -hmm. essentially hacking another critter's nervous system to do as they wish, to follow whatever their, their will is. Typically, it's to... Yeah, it happens you know. to us, too. I mean, if you look at um, inflammatory factors and things, there, there's a whole theory related to psychotic disorders of um, different types of parasites causing those in some people or being implicated in those or maybe inflammatory reactions caused by certain types of, of parasites. So it it's how much do they control us? I mean, I, I think Demi argues that it's a subtle effect. I mean, it's a profound effect and a subtle effect. So it's kind of hard to, is the sense that I can go and change my microbiome and not a tremendous amount in the short term is going to change in my emotional mental health. However, for example, there are some experiments about in animal models of autism where they will grow mice in sterile environments and, and they begin to have a lot of features like autism. So there is something about the interplay between our genes and the bacteria that is critically important. I think it's also we do a bad job as humans in terms of timeline. So if I take a probiotic course now, I'm looking for change like tomorrow, right, the next day. And as a human, I'm really, I mean, we're particularly bad at thinking uh, and measuring long-term outcome. Like the real question about that is how do I feel uh, four weeks from now or six weeks from now? And does it make a difference? Um, I think the other part about the bugs that don't compel me is I've spent a lot of time helping people change their lives and we haven't changed their bacteria too much. I mean, certainly some of my patients, we radically change their diet, but I, I see a lot of patients who eat reasonably well. Is this like measuring stool samples or what's the, when you say not changing the bacteria, how are you? Well, I think unless people have significant shifts in their dietary pattern, significant courses of antibiotics, if someone comes in, sees me, they're, you know, eating a reasonably plant-forward omnivorous diet, occasional fermented foods, let's say. It's not a lot of bad stuff in there. You know, besides my general move of increasing fermented foods and plants, I don't think that I'm profoundly shifting people, those individuals' microbiome. I think that they probably come in with reasonable microbiomes. In terms of testing, I am not so convinced that testing does anything more than either says to you, you're doing a good job eating plants and bacteria, or you need to do a better job eating plants and bacteria. Hmm. It's one of those tests that, um, like a lot of newfangled kind of tests and um, biomarkers that are getting thought about, they're really kind of on a frontier of where conventional medicine has certain notions about how testing should work, what it should cost, how it should be applied, and who should control the information. And that's really completely been upended over the past, I want to say like eight years, five to eight years. Hmm. So I don't know what I think about it yet. I see patients get results in an unsupported way that I don't think is very helpful for them. And then I see people get results, and it's really empowering to them in a variety of ways, but it's it's probably not because the results are accurate. Like, if we think about, not that they're accurate, but that they're meaningful. Like, if we think about, um, let's say, running your 23andMe to understand your methylation pathways through something like genetic genie, and you look at all your SNPs in your methylation pathways. You know, there's some way that we're going to try and extrapolate that, or people want to extrapolate that to like, wow, you know, I have a lot of SNPs, and that might explain my depression or my anxiety. And we like those narratives, but it's not 
it's so clear that those narratives really are quote unquote truth as we understand it in science yet. So what do you think research in 10, 20 years down the line when there inevitably will be some level of research on the impact of young people wearing masks or being exposed to people with masks covering up mm-hmm. facial features, which mm-hmm. is a, you know, a primary indication of, of expression and mm-hmm. you know, someone's reading someone's state. And so to go through the world, say, primary developmental stage of your life mm. and to not be exposed to, one, facial expressions, two, also being exposed to people that are kind of, you know, distance, obviously, a part of it, but also almost like afraid of each other. Freaked out, I think it's already like, freaked, yeah. yeah, no, I experienced But that not out. just, gen- I think there's a difference between generally we're freaked out and we're freaked out of each other. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because we're freaked out actually could be cohesive and could be to the development. We're freaked out could be the healthiest thing for a culture that's separate. Brings us together. We're freaked out by the alien out there. This is this is a particular type of freaked out because there's not (laughs) accountability for behavior, in the sense that the people who sort of spread the virus or are let's say bad players in this, or you know, there's no accountability in a way of like who kind of does the spreading. Mm. because symptoms and asymptomatic spread have been such a big part of this. I think to your question about kids, I mean, my general feeling on kids is kids are super resilient. And so I think, of course, there is an effect. I've even noticed it in my brain. I, you know, everyone, I think, probably listening has had that experience where, like, you're in a conversation and you're like, dang, it's like, where, where's the leave meeting button to, like, end this call? Oh, yeah. And then you're like, oh, wait, I'm talking to a person in real life or, uh, that you're like the first person I'm hanging out with in 3D. You've had COVID. I've had the vaccine. I mean, it's the first time I've done this in like a year. It's great. And so it is. It's great. I Love mean, it's it. been really reassuring that this is this still happens. So I think there's the going to be the re-entry as we get the population vaccinated. There's going to be the kind of bumps of re-entry. I think that fades kind of quickly. I've been kind of back out in the world for about a month now. You know, still wearing a mask, still trying to be wash my hands a lot and be safe. But at the same time, I've been in a lot of different states. I've been in Wyoming, I've been in Florida, I've, I've been here in California. And it's, and it's just been very interesting to see the different attitudes, the different things that get evoked in people around what this means. Um, it was a psychiatrist, I'm probably as interested in what happens internally for people and what it evokes in them and what that means about their psychology and their psyche that can help them understand themselves probably a little bit more than the actual kind of like truth. You know, I begin to think about your fantasies and associations of what happens to those children and what it means, right? And how it relates to kind of you, which is, you know, that's definitely the psychiatrist in me. Um, Say more about that. So, so you're saying you're reading into the fact that my mind's going into that direction, like what that says about me as a person. Yes, it, yeah, and also just as I think about things as a shrink in terms of thinking about how COVID in mask wearing affects us, allows us relief from a certain way. I mean, I think you know, feeling you have of wearing sunglasses that people can't see you. Totally. Um, see your expressions well now you know between sunglasses a hat and a mask it's like no nobody sees anything about you and so there's something that is deliciously private about that there's something that's terrifying about that you know getting really good at reading people's eyes and somehow mm. also you're pointing to that that we can only last so long like that 
that we need facial expressions. We need smiles. Well, unless you go to, you know, Islamic religions. And women are wearing a job. Yeah. A job. What is a burqa? Um, I think burqa's not... I think a burqa is, is kind of... Well, I think the burqa is kind of the... the um, you know, I don't exactly know, but I think it refers to kind of the larger um, the the covering and and the the actual okay. Uh, so I was, garb. I was um, but, cookie but, crumbs were, but, but I don't know. It's a, you know, it's actually really it's an interesting association. I think about this because um, there are cultures that certainly that, that cover their faces and and to think about well, even covering your chest or covering your pants or covering your cock. That's right, all right. just cultural decisions. That's not normal. That's normal based off of what we've been indoctrinated into. That's true. I think out of nature, I'd still cover my cock <laughs> a little bit. Just because well, it's like, a little oh, coconut got cup. Extra, yeah, I got I mean, coconut for you, a, little, a large coconut cup. Uh, or for external, me. external <laughs> genitalia. You know, I just, think, I just think it's like a little vulnerable. You know, it's like even it's like it's like why I like the surfing. Like I like the wetsuit surfing a little bit more because I feel like it just gives me that little hug and a little layer oh, of protection you. against. And the you're more ocean. buoyant, which and, is yeah, that level of safety. Uh, yeah, that's that's you know which way is up. Yeah. What um, I want to know. What you think about nutritional psychiatry, which is, you know, this this really new field. My first book kind of on the subject was 10 years ago. Now we have actual nutritional psychiatrists. There's clinical training you can get in terms of nutritional psychiatry. I mean, that, actually, we just offered the first course a couple of years ago for that. Yeah. But, you know, as you think about our collective mental health, how much do you, especially what you've seen with your clients, how much do you think food plays a role because I always think that that's kind of the, you know, like everything right now in how we debate, there's this kind of, it feels like sometimes the food is medicine, nutritional, psychiatry type talk yeah. can kind of go into a very like anti-med, anti-traditional therapy, you know, kind of a, people are struggling with their mental health because they don't eat well. I mean, it's chicken and the egg. I think that the way that you eat in large part is indicative of your identity structure who you believe yourself to be and so if you were a person that maybe has like lower self-worth for mm. example and this isn't 100 percent because i know a lot of people with seemingly really high self-worth seemingly um, and and high, great, high seemingly high, yeah right exactly. a great word there right and you and i both know net worth rarely has much to do with self-worth Cer certainly in fact they can be reciprocally associated but depending upon the nature of why that person was aggregating all of the material stuff. If there was, they're affording and trying to fill an insatiable void that's different than the person that's just really effective at playing the game. And so it's really hard to have any specific binary yes, no to I think anything. I think it's, it's always, it really depends on, on so many different variables. But I feel like with the nutritional conversation, I think a lot of it, there's one side that is well, who I believe myself to be, that's how I will reach out and you know extend my hand to grab the fruit or the kale mm -hmm. or the whatever at the grocery store mm -hmm. or the Burger King or the Chick-fil-A or whatever it may be. And then there's also the reciprocal side of that of what goes into my face will affect my bacteria and affect my neurochemistry and affect my cells and my consciousness and my thoughts and will feed back into my identity structure. So I think it's really, you, know, you can work it from both ends. There's this group of psychiatrists in like the 60s and 70s, a couple of papers that came out that as there was this newfound excitement and interest in vegetable oils, there was concern that it was going to lead to a rise in homicide mm. because there was concern that because those are kind of pro-inflammatory oils and there's some other kind of you know loose data connecting them to aggressivity, that we were going to like change the fats of the human diet and, and 
you know, as you're suggesting, begin to then change uh, uh, pieces of human consciousness or human experience. And, mm-hmm. and I think what's interesting, and in, in certain ways everybody listening knows that, that I wouldn't say exactly think about it on a bell curve, but just certainly think about there being a wide spectrum that you know takes something like uh, a vegan diet. People can eat a vegan diet, supplement it property, and mostly report a lot of health benefits. People can eat a vegan diet, go into B12 deficiency, and end up with dementia, psychosis, and depression. And as you're saying, the kind of way that we view ourselves as kind of eaters or as bearers of our own personal truth, it's just been fascinating to me as a clinician to see so many people have good and bad outcomes on such a variety of both diets and treatments. It like humbles you in a certain way, right? It's humbled me, certainly, uh, you give Zoloft to two people with the same symptoms and one of them you like totally change their life and heal them and the other one you like sedate and take you know give sexual side effects to it's kind of it leaves you really respecting the the importance of people finding their individual journey back to full mental health and mental resilience it's um it's one of the things i hope in this new book to do a, a little bit which is trying to like transcend this notion of i don't know i've just gotten a little fatigued with uh like vegan versus paleo versus impossible burger versus keto it's just gotten um i don't find it very interesting or helpful or, or well informed anymore when it comes to thinking about like nourishment. We're shaped by media. Yeah. And so all of those things that you just said are, they're all clickbait titles that are really effective. And, you know, there's a Marshall McLuhan's book, Medium is the Massage. If you're familiar with that, ever mm-hmm. heard of that? Really great. Originally, the message was the medium is the, is the message. Mm. And so the medium, and they changed it to the medium is massage. I think something like his editor thought it said massage and they just kept it and they thought, they thought it was cute. But the medium is the message. Essentially, what that's suggesting is, you know, you go to school and you go to work and you do all these things, and you think that while you're at school, you're learning what you're getting out of the specific information that's in the textbook. But ultimately, what you're learning is within the the container that you exist in. So you're learning about the you know the way that your 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 body, your biology, your mind, your emotional health, all that is learning. You know, what's the, the nature of the people in the room? How am I sitting? What's the environmental conditions? What's mm-hmm. the lighting in the room? What's the, the patterning, the scheduling? All that is really doing the, the deeper shaping. How can I stay awake during this boring lecture? <laughs> yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, the, the, those are like the tools that you're, that you're developing during that time frame. And then there's like, okay, and by the way, here's this information that you right. gathered. But the medium was really the thing that was actually creating the, the most traumatic change in your experience. Well, I mean, I think the information, you know, I think the problem, so many college students, and I think the, it's been so challenging for them during the pandemic of just so much of normal experience has been lost. But also this, like, pressure now, I think probably a mix of social media and also just um, a misunderstanding of childhood and adolescent development that people have of, you know, this idea, like, I mean, a lot of young folks who they're, you know, they're, they're really worried or, or looking for or focused on, like, their quote-unquote, their passion, Mm-hmm. That's and, very stressful. Oh, it's or it can su- be stressful. It's super stressful. Yeah. <laughs> and super stressful. And I think it's not at all how people find success. I mean, I, I've gotten to work with a lot of successful people like you have and, and have found some success myself. And, I, and it's not, it wasn't like when I was like 23 or 24, I was like, you know what? 
I'm going to be a nutritional psychiatrist. It's like, that didn't even exist. Like, I'm right. going to get on social media, get some followers. Like, there was no social media. Like, right. like most of the jobs that are coming up in the next few years. Yeah, they they don't exist yet. Yeah, and, and so I, I think it's um, certainly paying attention to what makes you feel good. But, you know, a lot of the things that engage me are, you know, are challenging, right? They're, I wouldn't say it's exactly like a a passion as much as it's one of these things you keep coming back to you've got to get better at you've got to understand in a deeper way so passion's weird i think some of the least healthy people that i know are people that are really claim health and they're like they really like that's they they, they do health and i think I, i'm borrowing this from like alan watts or somebody but when you are in this example health would be the thing if you're doing health then you're kind of missing the actual raw components that create health. Like health manifests naturally as a mm -hmm. product of playing tennis outside, being with your friend community. Right. You know, just eating like, wow, great food. And we're all digging our hands. And you're like, oh man, like, wow. Like, oh, there, boom, health. That's health, right? That's, you know, it, that's health. It is something that it's always right. <laughs> that there, there does become a kind of... Um, <laughs> "Quote unquote healthy eating can become a kind of orthorexia, right? Oh, yeah. Where it's it weird, and I think it's the same thing with fitness culture. It becomes, you know, not just about how you look and how you feel, but that you look and feel fabulous, kind of all the time, and you are a temple. And and yeah, I, I mean that's lovely in, in lots of ways, I, I guess. But it also, I think it, it it doesn't place value on the pieces of human existence that are particularly sticky and interesting for us, you know, the kind of underside of things, the darker side of things, the um, our aggressive instincts or the vulnerabilities that universally humans tend to feel when it comes to things like intimacy. Those are just a few, I guess, that, that come to mind of, of just, you know, working on them doesn't feel healthy because it forces us to sit with who we are and um, challenges that we have. And, it, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes people don't really like about psychotherapy is that, you know, you've been ignoring this thing, whatever it is, a, a piece of trauma or depression or an anxiety or just something that you're upset about, don't understand about yourself. And then suddenly you're really focused on it and you're talking about it once a week or twice a week, really thinking about it in this really detailed, intense conversation about it. And, and sometimes people... You know, symptomatically, they get worse. You know, they, they feel worse initially just because, you know, it's out there and there's the reckoning with that. But, but, but in a kind of focus, uh, a culture that's focused just on health, you feel bad in a, for a week or two weeks. Oh, I started this treatment or this stuff or whatever. I feel badly. You know, you're going to stop. And and it's where putting the value just on health, I think, um, yeah, misses that kind of concept of hormesis of things that maybe don't exactly feel great or comfortable push us to new things and new ways of thinking and, and new brain pathways that, uh, uh, I don't know, I think what it's all about. When you were talking about the, the underlying aggressions and all the different kind of the deeper constituents of our, you know, our personalities, it seems like a valuable asset to be able to navigate the human experience would be the ability to go in and out of holding this persona mm. and then being able to drop the persona and say, okay, what is beyond this story of who I am? Mm -hmm. And then you put that back together with the new information that you've, that you've aggregated. You put it back into your persona, you put it on the mask and you mm -hmm. go into the world. But if we move through the world without a cohesive story of who we think we are, which ultimately is a story, and at least for my, my story, it's a story. 
if we don't have enough anchored, rooted ties to that personality, we can just kind of spin out into the oblivion. We won't be, we won't be very effective in society. But then the other side of that would be being excessively wrapped up in that story mm-hmm. of your personality. And I am my job and I am my car and I'm my, my clothes. And mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is it. This is all there is. And I think that that could be quite limiting and perhaps even like, I don't know. I was going to say suffocating, but I mean, that's not true. I guess if you're living in your story and, and you, you die, you know, and you, you enjoy I mean, the, the I, ride, who cares? It's, it's funny where, you know, something Or are you like, looking for, like, enlightenment or whatever? Well, I, think it <laughs> I mean, you can kind of play both those scenarios. You can think about somebody who's, you know, a lot of what you describe someone who is gathering objects for the sake of impressing self and others. Right. You know, as opposed to somebody who is, you know, for whatever reason, they were raised in poverty and it has incredible meaning and reward and excitement to them that they've finally bought a fancy car. Sure. But I like the I think that word suffocating. Mean, I think that's what eventually leads people to doing personal work, whether that's in a therapy or a well, spiritual ma- journey. That's what the mask was about, Jim yeah. Carrey. Yeah, it's right. the mask starts to take on the whole body. At first you put it on for right, a minute. Right. But you gotta be able to take the mask off. Yeah. It's uh what I'm really curious about is also just, um, I guess, both sitting here in the sun is men, whether there's, you know, there's, there's certainly been like a masculinity movement, I guess, for a good 20 or 30 years that I am, how do I put this? I don't think that's really been about men waking up to misogyny and the patriarchy. I think that's about men maybe trying to feel safe for the first time a little bit with, I don't know, uh, sharing and feelings, etc. Mm. But does feel like now we're at this really interesting inflection point and I'm seeing this in younger guys there, there is more of um, I think both a personal accountability but also a notion of care of the self right? that, that there's something about the way that men generally have been really dependent on others right um, mom, girlfriend, partner however right to, to kind of direct them towards health and I wonder if you think that's shifting because, you know, we're talking about like modern masculinity and what's it look like. Uh, you know, I, um, I'm i just sort of really curious on your, some of your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind um, is I find some of, of the, 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 the standardized new age jargon to be a little bit like repulsive. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, that's a, that's a strong word. A step back from repulsive. But, well, yeah. But it We're here in the sauna. It depends, okay. on, the, I mean, depends some, on the scenario. Sometimes yeah. it's a little repulsive. Yeah. Right? But I mean, only if it's there's a there's a, a pretense or a dishonesty of, of, of where we're at with the thing. I think oftentimes the same thing like spirituality is a very obvious one. You know, where perhaps we are leveraging this this thing in order to get what we want because ultimately we're afraid. Or masculinity. The thing with that, it's like kind of, my perception of it could come back to like the health idea, the ultimate expression of being masculine. You're probably not going to be like thinking, I am masculine. That's not very masculine. Right. <laughs> you're just going to feel. <laughs> you, just, you're just, you just show up. You fucking show up. Right, right. You know, and you be an anchor and you be supportive and you, you know, you keep your word and you, you like, you do the work, but the, the work is in your, you know, in your every moment. Like every moment is an opportunity to do the work. You know, and so a person that's striving to be masculine, you know, obviously inherently there's going to be some imbalance there, and they're they're seeking to to rebalance it, and then 
upon the seeking of that rebalance, they'll probably create a platform and a social media thing and maybe develop a following. And the root of that still may come from a place of imbalance, but they're, you know, the, the primary kind of puppet of the movement. <laughs> and there can be a lot of like legit masculine, feminine people that just happen to have social media platforms and have a voice and be using it in a, in a really authentic way. Yeah, you know, both both players certainly both players exist. exist. Yeah, yeah, exist yeah, yeah. In this space. And also, I think it's hard, you know, because if you like, you're not feeling comfortable in your masculinity, or you want to be, you know, it used to be like be a man, be more of a man, right? Which isn't exactly like the terminology where we think about it. But if you are striving for something like a better version of yourself, a better version of masculinity. You know, there's something about that that probably overlaps a little bit with the stance you're talking about, which is, you know, the, which is kind of um, worshiping idol or it's like idolatry of masculinity as mm-hmm. opposed to actually seeking progression and evolution and thinking about that in one's everyday life, which, which I, I, I do agree has a very different feel and look to it. And I think probably, you know, considerate, thoughtful, circumspect, self-aware versus kind of um, striving and uh, repulsive, as you put it. I think it's probably... <laughs> Just the, the the bad player in quotation I find to be repulsive with yeah. all of the things. Right. Spirituality is the main one that I find repulsive. Masculinity... Less, just more distasteful. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, think, I think a lot of, you know, I think those are words that'll, it's like inflammation, right? It's just, or even depression or anxiety. They're just words. I mean, it's always been a little challenging, I guess, being a psychiatrist, where those feel a little bit like our words, you know, mm-hmm. like that's like, I spend my professional time revolving around those words. I talk about those words every single day. And so when you see folks like, you know, suggesting ridiculous things like, you know, drink celery juice to treat your depression, right? It, it does get a little turfy. Well, what about the people that that works for, though? Well, that's a really, really... Do you think really, that's a lot of placebo? Do you think that's a lot of specific to I their think genetics? it's food SIBO. Yeah. Um, for that one specifically, if you think... Is there a difference between food SIBO and placebo? Or do you just make food SIBO up? I made food SIBO up placebo. a while ago. I made food SIBO up right. a while ago. Under placebo, to, to, like specific to think about what happens when we follow rules. That when we join a group and we start doing things, behaviors that that are within the that are syntonic with that group, it makes us a member of that group. It makes us a better whatever vegan, carnivore, paleo, keto. That is just reinforcing. It just feels good to us as people. So there's a boost that you get. If you've decided you're going to eat a certain way and you end the day and you've done it, you get a little boost in your mood and confidence, just like when you finish exercise or or do anything hard. It's a little hard to, in research, cut that type of bias out or or include it in the study fully appropriately. Food seems practically impossible to research. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, if if you think <laughs> when about you think of the, all of the variables. Well, yeah, when you think about for yeah, that that's where you know when we separate out nutrition from lifestyle when you're looking at the Mediterranean diet, and it's a little bit you know for me kind of like look, you know, there's a lot of difference between me and the Mediterraneans, right? They dance more than I do. They hug more than <laughs> I do. They, they they uh just do a lot of things. They fast more than I do. Yeah. Um, so when we think of, about you know how how uh food relates to all this 
Do you just keep people in the sauna until they dry out, yeah. or is yeah, it, yeah. it? This is like because no. my competitive spirit's gonna go, and I'm just gonna like <laughs> I'm gonna be in here until my flight is like eight thirty. Be like, the I, think longest, in, I think we've been in the sauna for 50, 50 minutes. This is the longest. Uh, we're just gonna start. It's like round one. We haven't talked about the book yet. We were just like we got like round one. Like folks, hang in there. It's gonna be amazing. I, don't, I I'm love. Not, I'm not really even sweating. Yet. I love it. Well, let's meet about my mom. I mean, we got the infrared going so it's i mean it's only 115 that's only one so we keep it we keep it low so it's 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 manageable i'm so like in such a strange place in space and time <laughs> now it's like i've been i like raced all over today i like sh- shot a tv segment in my hotel room where the producer's like um would you put the pillows down just a little bit i'm like oh it's sort of obvious i'm in my like messy hotel room right yeah yeah of yeah. um, yeah, and that's great. The surf that was nice. That was a really, yeah, and I've gotten I got to eat sushi. That was really. I want to take a quick moment and discuss the value of cultivating the microbiome, the trillions of little bugs, the jungle that exists inside of your abdomen and your intestines, is responsible for more than just digesting food. Although that's an immensely valuable component to it. The colonies of critters inside of your meat suit are also deeply tied to mood, cognitive function, production of neurochemistry, dopamine, serotonin, things of the sort, which is things that we discuss in this conversation with Dr. Drew. So to support the health of our guts, teamed up with our homies over at BioOptimizers. BioOptimizers is a company that I have trusted for many years. I utilize their supplements every day. One that I enjoy in relation to repairing leaky gut and repairing the linings of the intestines, rebalancing your microbiome, weeding out the bad bugs in quotations, and reintegrating the good bugs. Leaky Gut Guardian has all of that in one little package. And if you're not totally satisfied with it, you don't feel benefits like real time within the week. You're like, wow, I feel better. Digestion's better. Energy levels are better. You feel more clear, any of that. If you don't feel completely 100% satisfied with the product, Send it back, 100% money back guarantee. So you've got nothing to lose and you get yourself a discount by going to leakygutguardian.com slash align. That's L-E-A-K-Y-G-U-T-G-U-A-R-D-I-A-N.com slash align. You'll get yourself 10% off. And if you don't love the product, if it does not make your life better, then send it back, get that money back. And uh, that's it. That's all. Thanks so much for tuning in. Onto the program with my man, Dr. Drew. What do you think of consuming the bacteria in the Venice Breakwater Beach? You know, I'm, you feel good about I, that? I'm, I've been pretty interested my whole life in exposing myself to all kinds of strange things and bacteria. And so, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, you, you wonder about it. Like, I'm, I'm dreaming, you'd be a good guy. You're a super fit guy. I've been dreaming about this night mission on paddle boards around the island of Manhattan mm. to raise money for suicide prevention. And I think we could outfit the stand-up paddle boards with, like, like cool Christmas lights and LED lights oh. and get like a group of folks to stand up paddleboard around there's sharks out there I mean there probably are a little bit and I know that when I'm in the midst of that journey in a flotilla of stand up paddleboards with you I'm going to be thinking about the sharks (laughs) <laughs> Whether they're there or not, in my mind, they're definitely like curious. Well, so that's another thing. So, so we this is clearly a highly tangential conversation, but coming back to something that's somewhat relevant to what's happened in the world. So, we've gone through this time frame of being afraid of each other, distancing, 
masking, covering up facial expressions and gestures and such. That's one. Rock. I think it's going to pass very quickly. It's like if you haven't had sex for a few years oh, and right. then you have sex Jump again. Back on the horse. I, I mean, I just think it's like people love to socialize yeah. and people love being social. And I think people are. If anything, I think there's going to be this almost like there's going to be a brief like, wow, I'm like a weirdo because like I don't exactly like remember this, and then there's going to be almost like a burst of hypomania right. where people are just going to be like, of course I want to go dancing, I want to go dancing every night I want to this go week, crazy. yeah, and I'm and with that, so I like that. Every, All right. maybe we should do this more often. Every this is like per- a social fast, yeah, well, fasting is healthy. You just like hide healthy here in the sauna, the world fast right? just like we'll yeah, just, just hide out, yeah. The other question I have in relation to that, though, is is the the hyper sanitization of everything. And you mentioned watching well, that, your hands a lot. That's bad. Yeah, that's bad. I mean, it's good for a viral pandemic, it, and it's it's good to like wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. Besides that, it's like soap and washing and all that stuff. It's super overrated. Do like, you wash like, before you touch your dick or after? Uh, it depends. I mean, that's I think a, you gotta wash before. Well, I mean, I think that your your whole genitalia has a healthy biome. It has yeah, its own biome. Every other area of your body has its own biome. So I think it's like... I think it makes more sense if you're going to wash your hands in the bathroom, you wash your hands before you touch your junk. You know, that's that's really... That's an yeah. advanced technique. It's, it's yeah, that's right. I not thought about that's that good. enough. So <laughs> you do take your dirty hands. It is, it is one of those things that you think about all the signs and you think, gosh, people have been like taking their dirty hands and touching themselves all over the place, sticking their fingers in their nose, whatever, sure. touching their junk for like yeah. a long time. and, yeah. and um, It's all good. But, I think most guys touch their junk pretty regularly throughout the day. They tend, I mean, but it's a I common, think most, I think it's like a soothing technique that most men probably Oh, it definitely wield. is. I, I had a man who um, <laughs> was, uh, you know, a kind of hyper masturbator. And, and he asked me once, sure. he's like, why is this not okay in terms of my like wellness and self care? Mm. He's like, I just, you know, I have a real high sex drive. I just like to squeeze one off like yeah. three times a day. It's like relaxing, it calms me down. And uh, yeah. It's not about the the act itself. It's about once again. It's it's what's behind it. Is it coming from a place of feeling disconnected and coming from a place of you know? Is it addiction or is it something that generally is like a self care practice? Is they're different. Well, I think that's one of the problems a little bit being a psychiatrist is we're kind of in the business of dictating what's quote unquote normal behavior and and not. Mm. Um, and, and we've certainly historically gotten into trouble for that uh, for a variety of things like I don't know pathologizing homosexuality until the seventies like you sure. know you can rewrite that book but at some point it's like wow that was that was real bad sorry about that yeah, yeah. Um, and we did rewrite that book so not we but uh, psychiatry the psychiatry we was that like written in textbooks yeah yeah up until DSM so we're on DSM five Diagnostic and Statistic Manual which is kind of it's actually it's just a research manual is the way to think about it. We're all guilty in the DSM. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're doing research, you've got to decide, like, (laughs) yes, you have OCD and you're in my study, or, like, yeah, you got a lot of obsessions, but you don't actually have OCD. And then how many, how many, sorry for for sidetracking you, but how how regularly do we end up, this might not be the right term, but developing iatrogenic mental disorders as a product of the label? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something. Sorry, I, I but just, you were on a thread. I, I, yeah, I jacked you up. Be, I think I got, have a disorder. You've got me super. Well, we can, we can, like, so can, be, we can definitely, that's going to be like 
the next 50 minutes we can just go out. I work in 45 minute sessions so it's just like right. basically I'm ready Perfect. for the next session you can just probably walk out of here come back in tell me your name's different Good. and I'll be like ready to start right, from the beginning <laughs> alright so set up the questions here again because I'm uh, I don't so have any liquid the, the left first, in me the first one well, we'll wrap this thing up soon because you're gonna you're gonna die of heat exhaustion I don't think so I think okay, that's okay, true okay, I, think, okay. I think I could handle I think I could handle this for a long okay. time oh perfect that's great then we'll keep it going um, well you were on a thread that I was enjoying and then I jumped you off of the thread of the, the potential of, of having a label a person perpetuating yeah, this that, that, that disorder this really lovely young woman and we had to get some uh, extra time for a uh, standardized test and so part of that was getting her neuropsychological test from when she was like a 10 and 12 and 14 year old young woman with really severe depression mm. and as I read through it you know and it has all the all the symptoms and all the diagnostic stuff and all the questions about her character and and it was really it really upset me you know I, I got in this very like I felt very defensive that like this is this is this really wonderful vibrant young woman who's working really hard on herself and this this write-up just makes her sound like a mess sure and um, it's something I learned a long time ago from from one of my patients was and from a lot of my patients was just the real the importance of not just having therapy be a downer um, and not that you want to gloss over anything, but the importance of celebrating people, the importance of modeling that, of, of, of um, really helping people create joyfulness in self, helping them connect with other people. I, I don't know. It, it's such a it's such a key part of it. And I think oftentimes, I don't know, my career can sort of get stuck. Yeah, you know, it's like just focusing on symptoms, what's wrong with people. Sure. Um, yeah, if you weren't broken before you came in here, you'll you'll be by the time we talk right right Trust you know, me. like i've got a well i mean it's a little bit it's a little bit since it's going to go full circle what we were talking about earlier like it's where people are mad at a healthcare system but the healthcare system is doing what it was designed to do which like, is what i'm designed to do is meet people when they're sick right. so the reason that this book i hope is very important in terms of changing the narrative about mental health is that mental health there is no prevention effort other than awareness right now in America. It's a big deal that we simply are talking about the words depression. And, and I agree with that. I'm glad we're talking about it. But awareness doesn't do anything in terms of changing the narrative. All awareness can do is bring us to action. And that's where growing awareness about things like exercise and nutrition, growing awareness about where people can access mental health services, growing awareness around how treatment gets people a lot better that we might have a broken healthcare system. But let me tell you, you give a skilled therapist in America a patient with depression or anxiety, they're going to probably get them better. There's a lot of really skilled and good mental health care going on. And we need that. And I guess I want to say that, like, especially right now, as we're really evolving our model to think about, wow, you know, I see my patients through my phone now. Mm -hmm. And they talk to me anywhere. I, you know, they can be on their vacation. I can be on vacation. I mean, it's really just shifted the flexibility we all have. That you know, instead of patient of mine, and you're in Brooklyn, you got to like deal with two hours of the train to come see me for forty five minutes. In some ways, that that's such a. However, that gets justified if we could do it differently. I yeah. mean, and more efficiently. I mean, like, and, and that's really what. Um, health telemedicine teletherapy has provided us and especially this increased dose i mean it's very you know to do something and ensure a changes system it's very hard right to even 
a year ago, you know, everyone would say, oh, well, you know, teletherapy's not as good and it's not this, it's not that. Even my own analyst, my psychoanalyst of like 20 plus years, this like lovely older man who at the beginning of the pandemic is like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that FaceTime stuff. He just told me he's not actually going back to in person. He's just going to keep doing the digital. Mm. And I said, how's it different? He said, it's definitely different. It makes me faster to call things out. And there's that way that because it adds this media component to therapy that's a little different where you have to make effort at the connection. So like uh, if a patient's needing to really hear something, I'll like lean in and yep. fill my face into the screen, right? Or, or if I you know, sense that a patient is kind of getting a little too, I don't know, just feeling a little that I'm too in their space, I can just lean back. Sure. In a couple of feet, and, and it changes the kind of experience of the patient. So you could put the camera really low if they have some type of like giant fetish, giantism. Right, exactly. It's like, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> yeah. I, did a, I did a podcast with a girl. That's, uh, her, she's a professional humiliatrix, and that was one of the things that I think she would do with people. Did she, did she sit right here with you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, got yeah, super, sweet, sweet and then girl. did she like humiliate you? No, I didn't ask. No, maybe a little bit. I'm not into that. Yeah. I'm not I mean, against it. I'm just neutral. Yeah, it's 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 I just like good old fashioned sex. Well, you know, that's like that's like a fetish these days. It's like, <laughs> it's like people without tattoos. It's like we're something now. It's like, ooh, you're new. Like I got no tattoos. Like old fashioned sex. Yeah. Old fashioned sex I think is underrated. I feel sorry. I meet a lot of young guys who are virgins and uh, not a lot, but a number of them in my practice. And the pressure they're under to be porn stars when you're mm. like and some of them are really surprised when you're like, you know, real sex isn't really uh, like like even really good sex doesn't really look like porn. They're like, No, get out. Mm. I think I've had some porn sex. Well, I mean, <laughs> not a lot. Yeah, but I think there's been a couple times. Well, that's, I mean, I'm not. I don't have the equipment for it. But positionally speaking, well, yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I because uh, antidepressants have sexual side effects. I, I end up oh, sure. prescribing Viagra and CLs, all those erection drugs. I remember one of my patients came back. He's like, you know, I understand how porn was made. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that stuff, it just works. Like to the point where you're like. Yeah, I'm not interested anymore. No matter what it's saying down there, I am not interested. But, yeah, you just need some beet juice. Yeah. You know. The nitrates. The nitrates. It's all about that nitrates. So, all right. The book. We have to talk about the book. All right, let's talk that's about part the book. Of, that's that's a part of the thing. The book. Um, I didn't get to read the book yet because right, you, you wanna, were over. want to hear what it says? You, you, were over, <laughs> you were over with my friend slash friend of the podcast, Max Lugabear. You guys were recording. And I realized that, like, OMG, I have two copies of your book. Yeah. We should freaking we should do this right now while you're in town for another six hours. This actually, this so is typically I would have loved to have read the book. I would have had like a whole thing well, of preparation. Right. We're gonna give you you get the author right here in your yeah. sauna. So it's like I don't know. It's like why not, why not just get the you know the that? personal version? So <laughs> so this is my fourth book, and I'm one of the early people in the nutritional psychiatry space. I just had that real simple question, like when people ask me what to eat. As a psychiatrist, somebody interested in mental health and brain health, like, what should I tell them? Besides what medicine was telling them, which is like, don't eat cholesterol, don't eat saturated fat. And, and I found people were mainly translating that into, I don't eat meat or I feel guilty about it when I do. I eat a lot of junk, but no one's really told me it's junk. I avoid cholesterol, but I don't really know what that molecule does or really even what foods to find it in besides meat. They're in a kind of anti-meat stance and not a real, um, what I call it, eater stance. They're not thinking about what they like to eat and the ways to nourish themselves with those foods. 
So Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety tries to first help people really upgrade their knowledge about mental health and food, but in particularly about these conditions, depression and anxiety, and to incorporate the new evidence and new ways of thinking. A lot of people are still thinking about these conditions or depression in particularly just as related to serotonin, and, and that's really a mistake. One, it's just like super old. It's like, I don't know. It's like, I like songs from the 90s too, but like there's been a lot of good, you know, Lizzo. Serotonin's like, like the ileocoeus of neurochemistry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's serotonin. We've moved on. You're, and so, pick up the phone, you got the dopamine spike. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> other, there's other neurotransmitters <laughs> that's, that's in there. That's right, just the dopamine. But I think the big concept people need to learn about neuroplasticity, that your brain can grow and change in adult life. We want people to understand more about inflammation and how that affects and decreases mood and increases anxiety. And then this idea that we've been talking about bacteria and the microbiome, how can you eat in a way that promotes a healthier, more diverse microbiome? And so my work over the last decade is really how do we identify foods that have really high nutrient density in essential and important brain nutrients. Minerals and vitamins are important for the brain. Things like omega-3 fats, vitamin B12, magnesium, zinc, they're particularly important to the brain and they're also tied directly to brain growth. So I build meals and recipes and, and food recommendations from thinking about the food groups that have the most of these nutrients. So it's not so much I want you to just eat kale all day long, but I think you should be interested in leafy greens because leafy greens are really nutrient dense. I think you should be interested in seafood because that's where you're going to find the really only concentrated source of long-chain omega-3 fats. And so that's really how the book works with the idea of trying to share some of the science. And then the, the science of nutritional psychiatry, which is just sort of cool, which is that... Yeah, it's a great term. Correlationally... It's, it's like sexy. Yeah, thanks. Nutritional psychiatry. I mean, it's, it's, we didn't have that for a long time. People, that's what we did. And I'm like, I'm a food shrink. I don't know. I'm a, and, then, and then, yeah, they started calling us nutritional psychiatrists. What is the origin of shrink? Is it shrinking minds? Oh, I don't shrinking really know. Problems? I don't really know. I hope it's How do you not know the origin of shrink? Uh, like wow. a little bit irritated. I, well, I, I mean, it's like, I, I don't really, I mean, yeah, it's just one of those things. Like shrink, I think it's like head shrinker, you know. I All think right. that's where it comes from. But I don't know. I don't We're going to have to look the, up the origin of shrink here. No, it's in, I bet my uh, Columbia's chairman, Jeff Lieberman, wrote a book called Shrinks. And so maybe it's in his book. All right. Well, I'll go, I'll do the old Google A afterwards. Yeah, Dr. Doctor, Doctor Google will help yeah, you with that one. Um, anyway, you were asking about shrinks? no. Um, I don't know. Sorry. It's late. Sun is getting to <laughs> What time? I mean, it's, it's like, it's like, we're about to head over to Max, right? I'm just getting like, Max has got a sauna. This is just round one. We're going to hit round two. Max does have a sauna as well. This is, this is, uh, All right. So something that I am interested in, then we will wrap this bitch up, is the level of potential mind control that is happening inside of our gut. We didn't talk about toxoplasmosis. That's another example. That's what I was thinking about with uh, schizophrenia risk, toxoplasmosis. There's a theory that toxo, yeah. Higher likelihood of getting in motorcycle accidents and doing dangerous things and such. You can explain what it is. I've already talked about it. probably ad nauseum on here. But the whole field of, Mm -hmm. I think the term neuro, I said it earlier, neuro neuro parasitology, I think Mm -hmm. is a a fancy term for it. So the study of, of... organisms getting hacked, mm-hmm. the nervous system being hacked by other organisms mm-hmm. to do their deeds. I wonder to what level that may or may not be happening in our own guts and like how much control do these bugs that exist within us have? And can you even say these bugs because ultimately the bugs just are you? I think the bugs have a profound influence on appetite 
energy metabolism, sugar cravings, brain fog, mood cycling probably. Um, I think the bugs probably are involved in cognition in ways that we're going to understand. And then I think it remains a question because it's still, we talk about the microbiome, we talk about the bacteria, but there's like viruses and parasites and you know, all kinds of stuff living down there. And so, and like anything, we talk about uh, mental health and, you know, things like meds and, and this idea about uh, bacteria, you know, like it applies to all of us as opposed to there are some people who are going to be, for whatever genetic reasons, have particular vulnerabilities to, for example, having certain parasites or strands of bacteria in your body. And and some people aren't. And so it, it's one of the things that makes research really confusing. And, and I think also beyond the research, what's really confusing for patients, right? This idea of like, do you know this med's going to work? Like, no, mm. I don't. Like, do you know the psychotherapy's going to work? It's like, well... Maybe there are you know, some research studies on how we could predict this with EEG or fMRI, but like nobody pays for that for treatment. Like The way you figure that out is you go into treatment. So I think that's going to be the next wave of kind of mental health where our diagnostic procedures and our treatments are going to start to shift and change to incorporate things like the microbiome, inflammation, new genetic and epigenetic data. We're, we're certainly not there yet, but I think we're going to be there in... Uh, Oh, what is it? 20? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us 10 years. I was a little more optimistic when all the genetic information started coming out. When I first started running genetic tests on my patients, I was like, this is cool. I can back to the future now. But yeah. then you realize that it's not clinically useful yet, and it's just um, a very, very expensive test. That, um, well, sometimes it's just really hard to... You know, It's funny, when you're in clinical practice... All this stuff that you know you read about it on the internet, or people have opinions on, you end up like sitting with a patient and results, and then doing your best to like make it useful. And you only have to sit in that situation like so many times to be like, okay, this is you know an interesting way to spend time together thinking theoretically, but it's not actually clinically applicable right now. That's as right now. That's going to shift. So what do you think the where my mind? sits with the nutritional conversation is I'm really excited about the source of food. I'm hmm. less excited about the specific, you know, whether it's an apple or a fish or a, a beef liver or, uh-huh. you know. But like, like the knowing where it from, it's from, how, it, its how it got there, where yeah. it, what's, what's its, its impact on the, on the environment, what's its impact on the soil that it came from, where yeah. it didn't come from, what's its, like that, what was his relationship to its farmer? Like that to me, I'm like, intuitively I'm a hundred percent. I can get behind that. Like that feels very clean connected. I'm like, yeah, like I think that matters. But then the other information of, of the specifics and the dogmas and the camps and the religions around nutrition, I think that a lot of that ultimately what people are seeking is community and tribe. They're trying to, you know, seek togetherness, which is like another nutrient. And there's a lot of, I think static and minutiae and noise around people stating facts based off of research. That's, not backed by anything that's that would be it would be very hard to have like really rock solid empirical evidence on the exact mechanisms right. of what happens when a, a, a banana goes you know you eat a banana and then someone in Ethiopia eats a banana and someone in California eats a banana and then their whole entire history and oh, environmental right. conditions and what they ate right. the day before you're, and the day after you're, you're and the weather gonna, and you're the not going to prove anything about and, bananas that way and, and it's um 
I think you're very spot on about the way that little bits of science get used in the media to um, ultimately misrepresent what's actionable, or at least that's what happens. And, and I think if we're honest, there aren't a lot of folks, and I put myself really on the borderline of this. I mean, I, I've got a medical degree. I understand research reasonably well, but um, even with that understanding, you know, the ability to really understand the statistics, understand the statistics of a new complex meta-analysis, there just aren't a lot of people with those math skills. Mm. Uh, you know, it's kind of, as you get into some of these debates, like, I don't know, that, you know, are in the wellness world about, you know, GMOs or plant-based diets or um, endocrine disruptors, the number of, I don't know, I, I, I just, I don't want to say I defer to, to, to people with really deep, knowledge but but for some of those issues i really do because i don't think most people understand those issues in a, in a really deep and nuanced way i've certainly found myself as i confront my own biases as a psychiatrist both about mental health but then about nutrition and about research um i, I don't know i've just learned a tremendous amount in terms of um well in terms of how subtle and pernicious all of our biases are so so is there a nutritional dogma that, that would lead to the least amount of depression and anxiety? So like what's did you create a dogma in the I think so. I mean depression? I, yeah. I, I mean I I think the dogma Another dogma. Here I, we go. Here we go. <laughs> I did. I created a dogma and it's the worst type. It's the one that says it's better than all the others. Well, and perfect, it says perfect. Aside from what popular culture is gonna have you believe that your pecs and biceps and butt and breasts and, and the, like th these are the parts of you that matter and it's how you should run your food plan to be like thin and trim and ripped and all that <laughs> the really thing that you need to value is your uh, your mind and your neurons like not a lot of them like you know you got like 100 billion of those cells and yeah I guess that's dogma I want people to stop prioritizing all this other stuff and start prioritizing human brains because I, I think human brains when well nourished and nourished beyond just the nutrients. I mean, sure, I spent a lot of time on nutrients. We focus on 12 nutrients in the book. I, I back that up with as much research as I possibly can. But there's also a, a piece of the book that isn't about nutrition. It's about what you're talking about, which is how you are connected to the food, how you purchase and participate in the food cycle, how you think about and identify as an eater, really trying to tap into some of your own personal cultural roots. And I think those are all really big pieces that get really lost in the nutrition debates. The one thing that you said that I, 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 I kind of slightly went off track with was the reducing your neurological synaptic function um, to being isolated away from the musculoskeletal system. Mm -hmm. So in doing exercise, fitness, Taibo, whatever you're into, getting outside for some Shinrin Yokus. I haven't heard about Taibo in so long. Dude, Taibo's sick. <laughs> Are you the last remaining person doing Taibo? No, I have never actually done Taibo, I don't think. I only have actually... Fully, but I like the idea of it. Tonight, it's nice actually, to say. I got the invite. It's Max Luver's Taibo party. Taibo, Taibo party, exactly. <laughs> Taibo. In the sauna. It's just be 12 of us doing Taibo in the sauna. <laughs> um, but when you're doing your Taibo, you're you're turning the, the gears in the brain. You're producing the brain, the BDNF. And, oh, for sure. You know, so all those those systems 
totally artificial from, from separation. My, my mind-body, this, 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 this body-brain separation, mind-body separation, I really think it's such a, such a misstep by Descartes. I, I don't think it helps us to think about it as separate. Um, I think that when we really think about it as an integrated, uh, complex... Because separating the brain from biology or, or separating the body from its involvement in our mental health is just, it doesn't make any intuitive sense. And it affects the way that we live our lives and our perception of self and right. the way that we navigate. And that's the same thing, like the medium is the message. You know, like the way that your your thoughts and or my thoughts, our thoughts, they're literally, you know, shaping the way that we navigate our lives. And so if we grow up with an idea that, that it is a, two, a separate thing, it, I mean, it's an interesting thing how that would affect a person's life i don't know shit's crazy how do you sum up these podcasts man you get people in there you get them like super like sauna trippy like i have no idea what we've talked about i'm glad we talked about the book there at the end but then it's like a few to like sum it up it's like i don't sum it up it reminds me of a session so everybody listening i mean i hope you've had a nice time if you'd fit here in the sauna it'd be it would be great to have you here and uh I hope whatever we've talked about is helpful to you in your mental health um, and in your quest for better mental health. That's yep. really the intent of this work. Certainly, I'm, I'm interested in the food you eat as having a piece of that. But I guess as I like to remind everybody, if you never eat any brain food, there's still lots you can do to take good care of your mental health. And it, it should be a priority for everybody. You should host this podcast. You'd be way better job than I do. Uh, that's all right. You know, I'm just like, I'm feeling the so in between. I'll host this episode, then we'll go okay. record another episode. Okay. Tybo episode. We'll do Tybo. Yeah, I'll lead, podcast I'll, I'll lead the Tybo. Special. I'll lead the Tybo. Tybo edition. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great. You should do a podcast on each like failed fitness trend, but that actually people loved for a little while and wow. they're not sure where it went. Dude, that's legit. I mean, you could say the same thing about each, each nutritional trend. Which is why I'm off the boat on everything. You're, you're, I'm just like, if I see a new thing coming in ketosis, whatever, I'm like, I don't give a shit. Yeah, I get it. it. It's hard. Just be around to, for a bit. I get it. Cool, sweet guys, enjoy. Right. I mean, it, it seems. It does. <laughs> it does seem. Give it two more years. For, we'll we'll be on to on to the next thing. Everybody needs to be doing eating niacin all day or something. Whatever the thing is, we'll figure out something I else. I find it also fascinating <laughs> when, when you end up in a situation where you're getting, like when you give talks and you get the same, you know, like this, remember that era where like every talk you get a question like coconut oil, you get like the coconut oil question, the GMO question. Well, that was an era for you. Mine was more like, you know, building healthy, supple butt cheeks and hip hinges and spinal health. Yeah. I didn't get a lot of coconut oil questions. No, they want, they want a coconut oil. When you ask, like, how do you get a healthy hip hinge, it's like pretty much coconut oil. It's going to be a name to, like, put it in there, rub it on there, like, eat it. It goes right to the hip hinge. Pretty much. Oh, There's a study I actually saw. It's like, like, like 67% improvement in hip hinge flexibility for coconut oil consumers. Olive oil as well. That's, yeah. that's, a, big, that's a big part of the, the cultures in Eastern Mediterranean cultures northern african cultures places where there's a lot of olive oil one you know i have this in my book they're spending a lot of time on on the ground which is a, a major part of lubricating the mm -hmm. joints and, and keeping everything mobile keeping all the synovial fluids in the right places and such but another big part of that was their consumption of olive oil i think it was like oleocanthal or something it's mm -hmm. a specific compound in there that's that's very helpful for for joint health there's a lot of variables with that shit but yeah olive oil is a big deal and then you have some people saying don't eat olive oil then you have some i'm just like dude i can just I have, look I've, at the I have, source i have 12 but i have uh, olive oil is one of those power players for mental health in this new book because that's my belief 
Yeah, I just think it's it should be the main fat that you eat. And um, agree. Why is that? I think it should be the main fat that you eat for a couple of reasons. One, being a monounsaturated fat, it's not particularly oxidizable compared to something like a long-chain omega-3 fat. I also, there's some long-term data looking at uh, olive oil consumption and reduced risk of depression. But I, I like it because, one, it's a fat that everyone tends to agree on. Um, two, it's tied to, to to reasonable health benefits in the data. Although you know all nutritional epidemiological correlational studies kind of can be called into question, I like the biochemistry of the plant molecules in there, the phytonutrients in there. They tend to be quite anti-inflammatory. And then uh, I like the idea that using it to cook my vegetables, I'm pulling out certain fat-soluble things like beta-carotene and other carotenoids, um, other fat-soluble nutrients that you just do a better job absorbing if you eat fats. So, eat more olive oil. Is there any top five things that are causing people depression? From an, yeah, from a, from a nutritional standpoint, you know, I think for Cause sure. Is probably a loaded word, but well, no, I think you can't. Well, you know, it's a good point, right? Which means so the association, association with depression, you get increased association to the Western style dietary pattern, increased association or increased odds of depression with a high omega three to omega six ratio. So eating a lot of omega six fats and not a lot of omega three fats, which even the omega three, omega six argument can be kind of, I think, confusing because oh, yeah. I think the belief that it's like, okay, anything with omega-6 is just bad. Right. Learned. Well, it sort of skips the fact that omega-6 fats are essential fats right. that everybody eats and everybody needs to eat. It's the eicosanoid system's a complex and fascinating system. Which, so. again, ties back to our kind of clickbait mind oh, that's, right. that's formed right. by media. Is this evil? Get rid of it. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it's like midnight my time. Right. Let's All wrap right. this bitch up. Hold on, hold on. We, we, <laughs> You, you're, you're getting to some food questions. That was a good one. Everybody listening, it's like it's like midnight. I'm in a sauna. It's been a, it's been a lovely and long day. It's a cool way to wrap it up, though, right? It's a good way to wrap it up. Sweating out the very, demons. Like, yeah, you know. You know what? With a lot, of, I think the sweat just evaporates, right, and then it kind of leaks out. I probably lost all oh, of. You probably just got good skin skin biome. All the bugs are soaking that they're shit soaking up. Soaking it, and they're eating yeah. my toxins. Yeah, it's payday. Um. Well, this has been a pleasure. I hope people would, um, if you're still listening, check out the book. It's, it's uh, <laughs> Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. It's uh, filled with really, really uh, you know, illustrations. Have you seen the illustrations yet? Those are really nice. And you're, you're a medical doctor. I'm a medical doctor. You're one of the only doctors that's, uh, you know, most of the doctors, not that medical doctors better or worse than the other, but I feel like a lot of the, the doctors are typically like chiropractors and stuff like that or... So matter, look at this pesto recipe. See, so the book's full of these sketches and drawings. Oh, this is cool. To sort of, what a cool um, thing. Had a, what, a great, what a great tool to be able to give this to patients and clients and friends and family and such. Well, I think uh, it's a nice way to... I, I like it because food's always been really useful for me clinically in terms of a good way to get a conversation started. Like if you're... Yep. One, talk to people about how they're feeling... I think all of us can, you know, especially when you know somebody's sort of struggling. It's, it's uh, even for a professional like me, sometimes it's kind of hard, especially outside of the office. How do you get that conversation going? And it's where, you know, talking about food very quickly leads to talking about how we're doing, how we're feeling, how we're feeling about our food. And 
bam, suddenly you're having a conversation about mental health. So I hope yep. it I hope it just helps people get more talk going in their homes about depression and anxiety and I hope it gets people eating more of these nutrient-dense foods that the science really seems to clearly and consistently tell us over the last 10 years really can make a difference in terms of emotional health. Love it. Thanks so much for making time to do this. All Thanks right, for man. coming over and sweating it out, that's, doing some podcast time with me for an hour and a half. It's my chance, my pleasure. Wait, 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 wait. I've never been in an infrared sauna, so it's like today's the day, away. man. Today's the day. All right, thank you all for tuning in. Over now. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, share it out on the gram. It would be a great place. You could tag myself at Align Podcast or you tag Drew Ramsey at Dr. Drew Ramsey. And once again, thank you so much for reviews. Thanks for sharing and thanks for telling your friends. The way that this program grows is ultimately for you guys. So I so greatly appreciate y'all's support if you find this podcast valuable. And lastly, if you all experience back pain or knee impingement, we created some mini programs that can be found at alignpodcast.com slash courses, two of which on there are specifically geared towards knee impingement. If you're having any kind of knee pain, clunkiness, crepitus, it just feels like there's something off in there. Uh, we've got some great exercises in the knee course and then also back pain. It's particularly low back. So we broke down, I think it's about 12 different videos that I find to be some of the most impactful, effective exercises, self-care techniques for you to alleviate, strengthen, prehab, rehab that spine of yours. So jump over to alignpodcast.com slash courses if you're interested in that. And that's it. Thanks for tuning in. I will see you next week.